Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of the Just Pod. Today, we're joined by two members of the ABA's ICC project. We have with us the chairman of the board, Michael S. Greco, who is also a former president of the American Bar Association. We're also joined by Kristen Smith, the director of the ABA ICC project. So thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. So Michael, let's start at the beginning. What is the ABA's ICC project? The ABA ICC project came into existence in the year 2012 when the ABA Center for Human Rights, of which I was chair at the time, realized that uh, the International Criminal Court, which sits at The Hague in the Netherlands, needed some support. The court was created in 1998 at a five-week conference in Rome, Italy. At the end of that conference, 160 nations attending that conference voted to create the court, 1998. And what resulted from that conference was a document called the Rome Treaty. It's a multilateral treaty among all those nations. It's also referred to as the Rome Statute because the court, the ICC, International Criminal Court, is bound by the laws and regulations included in the Rome Statute. And the Rome Statute defines the crimes, among other things. So the ABA, in uh, the year 2012, embarked on this project, and it's now in its seventh year. All right, and Kristen, let's take a step back. In case our listeners are not familiar with the ICC, can you tell us about this court and its significance? Sure. So the International Criminal Court is the world's only permanent court with jurisdiction over atrocity crimes, which are genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and now more recently the crime of aggression is also included. The International Criminal Court was created in response to the need demonstrated for an international body that could have jurisdiction over these crimes that the world saw in the 1990s when it created the International Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia and the International Tribunal for Rwanda. Those tribunals were both time-limited and focused on specific situations. So the world saw the need to create a court that could apply more broadly and more broadly fight impunity for those types of crimes. And the International Criminal Court is capable of holding accountable individuals who are most responsible for international crime. So it really seeks to fill a gap in accountability and challenge impunity around the world. I think some of the positives that are always worth mentioning of the court is that it's really shifted the expectation when these crimes occur to that of seeking justice. So when an atrocity crime occurs around the world, it's, I think, arguably no longer the understanding that that person can and should get away with the crime. Instead, the International Criminal Court and its existence, even though it doesn't apply in a lot of situations because of jurisdictional limitations, has, I think, helped to create an expectation that justice should be sought in that case in some form even if it's not necessarily at the International Criminal Court itself. It's also, I think, served as a catalyst for accountability in domestic systems around the world. 
people often cite Colombia and Guinea as examples of this work because the International Criminal Court operates in complementarity to national systems. So it serves as a court of last resort for the crimes that I mentioned, stepping in only when national jurisdictions are unwilling or unable to prosecute those crimes themselves. Under international law, of course, domestic systems have primary responsibility for prosecuting those crimes themselves. But for a whole number of reasons, it's not always possible especially in post-conflict situations. So where the Office of the Prosecutor has been engaged in preliminary examinations, there has been some progress towards accountability at the domestic level as well. And I think it's always important to remember that the International Criminal Court was created for a reason. As I said, it seeks to fill a gap and fight impunity, and that reason still exists. It's actually probably arguably a stronger reason now than it might have been a few years ago. So it's worth supporting, and that's why the International Criminal Court Project at the ABA continues to exist and work to support the court and also educate the U.S. population about the court and why it's important. What Kristen just said is spot on. That's exactly correct. But I want to add a couple of other points. The impetus in 1998 to have the Rome Conference followed a rocky road from World War II to 1998. I teach a course in China every year. This is my ninth year of doing it called International Criminal Justice. And the field of international criminal law really began after World War II at the Nuremberg trials and the Tokyo trials of the Nazi and Japanese war criminals. After the trials, there's a documentary that is so powerful and so, then the Chinese students who've never seen anything like this, because those films that convicted the uh, Nazis were films taken by the Nazis themselves in arrogance to show what they were doing, the the, uh, Holocaust that was recorded both on film and in their diaries. So after the Nuremberg and Tokyo trials, the international community said, never again will we permit these things to happen, these atrocity crimes. Well, the sadness is that from 1946, 47 until 1990, nothing happened to create a permanent accord. Why? Because the Cold War tensions between the U.S. and Russia, the suspicions, there was no appetite for a court, criminal court. But in 1990, as Kristen mentioned, the U.N. Security Council created two ad hoc tribunals, the ICTY, which is the Yugoslavia court, and the Rwanda court, ICTR. And on the ICTR, I think there were U.S. judges involved in those tribunals. Then other ad hoc tribunals were created, one for Sierra Leone, and a number of others. And then there was a revival of the idea, well, we need a permanent court. We can't keep creating these courts because they're so expensive from scratch. And that's why in 1998 there was that conference in Rome. From 1998, it took four years before the ICC became operational because they needed at least 60 nations to sign on, and that happened faster than anyone thought, and that showed that there was real interest in a permanent court. And so from 2002, when it became operational, to now, 2019, the court has had growing pains, and we will get into a little later what those pains have been and what they are right now. So let me ask, what is the United States' involvement in the court? 
So the United States is not a state party to the Rome Statutes, which means it's not a member of the International Criminal Court. There are 122 states parties, so the court has wide membership around the world, but the United States is not one of them. Other nations such as Russia and China are also not members, so that has fed into some of the growing pains of the court and its limited ability to seek accountability for certain crimes. However, different administrations in the United States have exerted different levels of cooperation with the court. Some have been more cooperative than others. So during the Obama administration, for example, the United States assumed a more mutually cooperative relationship and kind of worked to support the court in certain ways on a case-by-case basis, where they felt that cases that the court was pursuing also benefited U.S. interests. Just some little examples of that cooperation are the U.S. had a role in helping to send two suspects that were under indictment by the International Criminal Court to the court, helped facilitate their transfer, one of which actually surrendered at a U.S. embassy abroad. There is also a law in the United States that limits the ways in which the United States can potentially cooperate with the court called the American Service Members Protection Act. So in short, although the U.S. is not a state party and some administrations have been more combative and less supportive of the court and its mission, the U.S. has also cooperated throughout the years in other ways. And I think the U.S., regardless of administration, continues to argue that it supports international justice and accountability more broadly, even if it's less supportive of the International Criminal Court specifically. Let me add just a couple of other facets. One is that when the court was created in 1998, as I mentioned, the nations that had attended the Rome Conference were asked to sign on to accept the jurisdiction of the court. And the big three missing uh, among the 122 that are currently nations uh, subject to the jurisdiction of the court are the U.S., China, and Russia. And each of those countries has given different reasons why they don't want to belong to the court. And we'll talk about that a little later, maybe. The important thing is that when the Clinton administration reacted to whether we would sign up or not, President Clinton wrote a letter to the United Nations, which was the process. And in that letter, he essentially said, we need to review, we need to consider what's in the Rome Statute and the Rome Treaty, and we'll get back to you. So that, that, that was kind of a temporizing. He left office, President Clinton left office, in came George W. Bush. What did he do? He withdrew that letter, uh, saying that we're not going to participate in the court. And that started the negative phase, eight years, that, that very little happened between U.S. and ICC relations. Then came the Obama administration, and the Obama administration, as Kristen said, went back. Unfortunately, those two laws that, that were enacted by Congress at the urging of the Bush administration to separate the U.S. from the court were on the books, and they weren't about to be removed. But the Obama administration also was able to get around those limitation statutes to provide certain kinds of of support for the court. And that was another motivating factor for the ABA in 2012, because with that different attitude, the ABA Center for Human Rights, which created the ICC project, saw an important role for the lawyers of America to weigh in on the need for the court and to support the court. And so that's what we've been doing for the last seven years. So now, speaking of the ABA, 
Why did it get involved and what is the mission of the ABA's ICC project? In a nutshell, I would say that there are two main purposes of the ABA ICC project. One is educational and the other is advocacy. Education, who are we educating? The American people, the members of the U.S. government about what the court does, what the court is, what the court is not to satisfy the concerns of government leaders. The other part of the education effort is that the project, through the ICC project, the ABA has been able to help train personnel at the court, whether judges, prosecutors, the registrar, how the court operates. And we've had uh, those programs at The Hague. Uh, we've had panel discussions, many of them from 2012 to now in Washington and other places, to educate everyone we can educate. And then the other part is advocacy. The court is attacked frequently, unfairly, in ignorance. And when direct hit to the court happens, the ABA Board of Advisors, which we mentioned earlier, which includes the most eminent experienced lawyers and judges and former judges in the world will decide whether we should respond to that attack. And we've responded many times to those attacks because the court cannot defend itself. It needs people from the outside. So the ABA project has filled the advocacy role. So education of our people, our government leaders, education of the court personnel, and then advocating for the need for this court. What would we do without this court dealing with atrocity crimes? What does the project do to work toward these goals? Well, as I mentioned early on, when we decided what is it that we can do really to help the development of international criminal justice in the world, and when the hybrid tribunals in the early 90s dealing with the genocides and war crimes and crimes against humanity you know, Yugoslavia, which had a br the breakup in, in all those countries, was like a forced marriage. They hated each other to begin with, and, and they hated it while they were Yugoslavian. And then the hatred came out in genocide by mass killings, and also in Rwanda. So what the project has tried to do is to educate and advocate. And I think we've made a difference. So the work of the court is extremely important in the ABA ICC project, whether we're responding in op-ed pieces on attacks, uh, whether it's in-person meetings, because the, the purpose of our meeting with the Assembly of States Party's president was that the, there is a, um, an effort underway now to conduct a review of the court after 20 years of operations. And it's, it's a timely project, and it's moving forward. And we wrote a letter, uh, the ABA ICC project wrote a very comprehensive letter to the president of the ASP indicating if a review is taken, what kind of a review should be, who should do it, what, what are the issues. And so we're involved in that right now. It looks like the ASP will not directly involve NGOs, non-governmental organizations like the ABA and others in the U.S. and around the world directly in the review, but there'll be a very important role for those NGOs to speak up indirectly about what that review process is. So all by way of saying that the ABA has been directly involved with this court, and, and I should have said early on that the first involvement of the ABA at international criminal law level was as early as 1978. The first resolution was adopted 
And since then, in the last 41 years, the ABA has adopted numerous reporting recommendations for international criminal law, international criminal justice. We urged the creation of the court in 1998. We were there in Rome in 1998, the ABA and the president with a delegation. We had input into what the Rome statute should have. And we have addressed the Assembly of States parties. Uh, they meet each year. And last year, we presented a statement to the entirety of the Assembly of States parties, these thousands of people from all over the world convening at The Hague. And the reason we, we spoke on that occasion is that the court was under attack from the Trump administration. And we needed to reassure the Assembly of States parties that the ABA was not with the Trump administration. And we prepared a statement, I delivered it, to reassure everyone there that the ABA is continuing to be as supportive as we have been for the last four years. And don't make any mistake about that. The American lawyers are still supportive, and we take issue and we disagree with the Trump administration. Or any administration, I imagine. Any administration, exactly. It happens to be the Trump right now. And if there are future administrations, Democrat or Republican, we're going to continue to be consistent. All right, so we are just scratching the surface on the ABA ICC project and the work that you do, and we'll be happy to follow up with this project as there are more timely reports or projects that you're working on. But in the interim, for those listening that want to get involved or find out more information, find out how they can support the ABA's ICC project, what should they do? So the best thing is to go to the ABA's ICC project website. It's www.aba-icc.org. The website has lots of information that you can learn further about the International Criminal Court itself, about the history of the U.S. involvement in the court, and about ABA policy regarding the court. As Michael said, the ABA has a long history of support for the ICC through policy, and we have a timeline of all of those on the project's website. We also have a timeline of U.S. involvement in the court back from when the U.S. participated in negotiations to the signing of the Rome Statute to the unsigned signing of the Rome Statute and all the steps in between then and now that the United States has taken to engage with the court when it chooses. We also have information about the International Criminal Court itself, how it works, its structure, and its investigations and cases. So go to our website. On that website, you'll also find another link to a website called International Criminal Justice Today, which has some op-eds and discussions among experts about the International Criminal Court in addition to results of polls that the project does in cooperation with Ipsos on the understanding of the International Criminal Court in the United States, which is very interesting. So you can check all those things out online. Great. Well, thank you again to both of you for joining us today. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod.